Um, today, we're going to be continuing our study on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we've been kind of playing around with the passage that Ken read um, just a few minutes ago for the last few weeks, but we're going to, I want to go a little deeper in that today. Um, this is Jesus' teaching on divorce. Um, so if you didn't know, if you weren't following along on the Sermon on the Mount, you're probably thinking, oh great, <laughs> I should have stayed home today. But I want to tell you this, um, this is super important. And it's not about what you think it's about. So as we come into Jesus' teaching, Jesus, we're going to have to look at a few things. So I really have, I have two main things I want to share with you. Um, the first one are the three laws around this, the marriage relationship. And then I want to share the four yokes. All right? If you'll remember, we started this series, and Scott did a great job talking about um, that Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And we, we understand yoke not simply as some metaphor for how we're led, but a yoke is literally the interpretation of the law and the teachings of a specific rabbi. So every rabbi had their own yoke, and they would take the, the yoke of their teachings and place it on their disciples. And Jesus is right off the bat talking about this relationship. Now, now marriage is a hot topic. Um, today. But I don't want you to miss the fact that marriage was as big of a topic when Jesus was giving this sermon the very first time, or the only time we know of. But, but in real time, marriage and divorce was a huge topic. And it was not about you're in and you're stuck. And i got to be honest, a lot of the church's teachings about marriage and divorce is just that. You're in and you're stuck. But that goes against so much of the rest of the teachings of Jesus, we have to dig deeper and see what is Jesus actually saying here. And what we're going to find is that Jesus' teaching is not just about marriage, it's talking about humanity. He's talking about relationships in general. And so we're going to do some contextualizing. We're going to go through and we're going to look at some of the old Hebrew. Um, I want you to hang in there with me. I think this is going to be super um, encouraging for us as we move forward. And, and if you're in a relationship that's not healthy, um, I hope it speaks to that. And if you're one that is healthy, I hope it speaks to that too. I mean, it should. Um, then we're going to come together. We're going to take communion together. And I, I, I feel and I hope we're on the end of our little, um, you know, to-go cups of communion. And maybe Maundy Thursday will be our first time we'll come together and we'll return to intinction. Intinction is um, a practice we normally would do uh, communion where we actually take a piece of bread, we dip it in the juice. Um, we'll have to modify it a little bit, but I, I'm hoping we'll return to that for our Monday-Thursday service, all right? So, let's jump into the Sermon on the Mount. So far, we've been to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the people who are, who are poor in spirit and who are meek and who are seeking God and persecuted because they're not like the other people around them. And Jesus' message to them was, the kingdom is here. It's for you. We've gone into a few other teachings. We've talked about uh, Jesus being the fulfillment of the law. In other words, I'm trying to show you what it looks like if you live this out. Um, for us, that's super important as disciples that we ourselves are looking to Jesus to say, well, if this is what it looks like to live this out, then this is probably the way I ought to live too, which is, I think, a good takeaway for that. Um, we talked about the, the, the being salt and uh, of the earth and being light of the earth. Um, and Don did a great job talking about the fact that our, our lives, the way we interact with each other, the way we live, it should create fertile soil in the lives of others so that when they receive the gospel, it can grow and they can experience the exact freedom we just sang about. 
Last week we talked about another really fun one, and it's interesting that Jesus jumps on these topics right from the beginning. In his first major sermon, he jumps on these right in the beginning. And this is before he has any disciples. <laughs> so he doesn't have the 12 yet. Um, he's just saying, listen, here I am. This is what I'm about. And if you follow me, this is what you're going to be about too. And he jumps on the lust, um, or as we talked about it, desire, last week. And then he follows up immediately with this teaching. We find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, and he said, You have heard the law that says, a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. All right, there it is. Now, this is two verses. Jesus later is going to teach more in depth on this whole thing, and he is, and, and we're going to jump to that in just a minute. And he's going to more explain what's happening in these two verses. Now, this is a huge topic for today in church, out of church, everywhere. Divorce is not just very prevalent. Um, in fact, what statisticians, statisticians tell us is uh, marriages are happening less frequently, likely because. Uh, divorce happens so often. Broken relationships. Um, sometimes those broken relationships are, um, we just fall out of love. And sometimes those broken relationships are because someone is abusing someone else. Um, there, there are all kinds of reasons that these things happen. And these teachings matter to us, because, um, especially if we're not married. Do I want to get married? Do, do I want to get married with the person I'm dating? Or do I not? Or, you know, what, what does this mean to us today? What if, what if I've been divorced? Is, am, I, am I just a, a Christian who has to live with that shame over their head? Which, let's be honest, that is often the teaching of the church on divorce. And yet Jesus never approaches people like that in any other place. But somehow we've taken this teaching and we've lumped a whole bunch of shame on it. And the reason is because we don't actually understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And in this regard, this is his yoke that he's placing on his disciples. Did you have a question? Uh, we'll get to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. Let's read. Um, let's, let's, let's move forward. I'm going to jump back. And I need to do some, some language work with you. I'm going to go back to the beginning because this is exactly how Jesus taught on difficult topics. He went back to the beginning. And that's why we read Genesis 2 this morning. And I just want to, I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see what Jesus intends for you in a relationship um, with, um, with a spouse. We find that most evident in Genesis chapter 2 when God says it's not good that man should be alone. Some of the terms that we need to look at. Um, the first one is ish in the Hebrew, which means man. It's not good for ish to be alone. And so God decided that there needed to be a helper for him. And that helper would be created as woman, which is the Hebrew word isha, which are very, very similar words, aren't they? Now, interestingly, the Scripture tells us that a rib was taken out of Adam, which has been completely abused 
um, through history about what that means as far as uh, a place of value, a place of worth, a, pa- a place of, of even power, um, and image of God. Whereas there are some that teach that because um, woman was created from man, somehow the, the only value she has is through men. But this is not how this is written in the Old Testament. This is not the language that is being shared um, by, by the writer of this passage. And this is not the understanding of the value of men and women as equal um, bearers of God's image in the world. In every place that you find um, a, a discussion about men and women and the value before God, is there is, gra- there is equality. There is not one that is better. In fact, um, if you ask a... If you ask a uh, Jewish rabbi about the rib, they'll say, well, that's, that's not really what it means. It doesn't mean that, that they took a rib out and fashioned a rib. What it, what it really means is that they took something around Adam to make something like Adam, but different than Adam. Now, the word Adam literally means dirt <laughs> because he was made out of the dirt. So um, I like to tell my friend Adam, um, I like to call him dirt. And, uh, and that's a good translation of what his name is, Dirt. Um, so if you have any friends named Adam and you want to call them Dirt, uh, just tell them I said that you know it's a term of endearment um, that we find in Genesis chapter 2. All right? Uh, literally means Dirt. Go back to those phrases, if you would. So uh, then we have this interesting phrase about a helper or a helpmate. And I talked a little bit about this last week. And that phrase is... Uh, Ezer Konegdo. Now that's <coughs> two words that create a phrase that gets translated as helper or help meet or help mate, depending on the scripture in which you're reading. And those two words together, um, they, they create an idea. So when we bring them together, uh, the word Ezer literally means um, to rescue or to save or to help. So when God looks down at Adam, and he has all the animals, and but there's not anyone or anything there that is suitable for the loneliness that he's feeling, or someone that can help him, or rescue him, or save him, then God looks down and says, he needs something else. He needs someone else. The word connecto can mean strong, or it can mean against, or it can mean in opposition to. So if we put that together, what we find is we find the help that is against or opposes, which is that not a wonderful description of marriage. Can I get an amen? All right, everybody who said amen needs to sign up for a counseling session right after um, today because um, something's messed up, right? But seriously, this is the image of marriage that we begin in Genesis chapter 2. We have two, two people that at times are in opposition to each other, and this is not sin, this is by design. So this is those pictures I mentioned last week. Instead of holding tight, it's kind of pushing against each other. We kind of hold each other up. And and, and what this teaches us, that in marriage, God intended for this relationship, and honestly, we can break this out even beyond marriage, not just not to the same level of intimacy, There is a place in which there is value when we come against something that is different from us and create some kind of opposing force to us. 
there's something about being the same that creates loneliness. Adam was it was not good that Adam was alone. But it also wasn't good to have someone that was subservient to him, and it wasn't good to have someone um, who was exactly like him. It was good for them to be unique and at times for them to provide an oppositional tension to them. Now you can think back to some of your greatest relationships, your greatest friends, and some of them are just like you. But often what we see when two people come together that are exactly like each other, we generally see a whole lot of conflict. Because we're just like each other. We joke about the idea that, you know, if we're both the same, then one of us isn't necessary. But that's somewhat the idea that we're seeing in this Ezra Konegdo phrase. There's value and beauty in the tension between people. And at times that enters into our marriage in different ways. Now if you're going to have this kind of relationship and you have tension within your marriage, congratulations, you're doing it right. You can leave encouraged. You are doing it right. Now maybe that tension is unhealthy tension. But the goal that we're trying to reach is not the end of tension. And there's a different, there are different ways that we try to approach this. One of the ways we approach this is we pick one person and we say it's their way or the highway. You don't, you don't have any relationship like that that's healthy, except maybe your employer, right? Any friends you have that it's my way or the highway is not a healthy relationship. Any marriage in which one person is my way or the highway, that is not a healthy relationship, and that is not how God designed you to be in relationship with others. And let's just remember, we come back. Jesus is saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus also said, I'm showing you what this looks like and the way that I'm living this out. And then Jesus would also go on to say, the whole purpose of this law, even this law, is wrapped up in two ideas. And one is that we love God with our heart, all our heart, our soul, and our might. And the second one is that we're going to love each other. This has to all fit if this is a consistent teaching. And what ends up happening is when we don't know how it fits, we create a category. And we just slide this category over, and all of a sudden, we don't have to love each other. But yet we can hold to this belief. Well, then that doesn't make sense that Jesus would be giving a cohesive statement or a cohesive tension. So as we come to this, what we find is that God looks down and he says, it is not good for man or Adam to be alone or for Ish to be alone. I'm going to create... Someone like him, Isha, and in so doing, there is going, they are going to help each other, but there is going to be a tension because at times they are going to oppose each other. And this is what God designs for us. It's not just companionship. It's not just that Adam is a really busy guy. Man, I need some help over here. It's not that. And what we end up doing when we remove the intent of what God is trying to do is we begin to say silly things like, your husband is abusing you, you should stay. And yet we never see Jesus respond to anyone like that. Ever. Or we, we, we take a, a whole grouping of people and say, well, um, you, you've messed up, you're not a good Christian. And the problem with that is none of us are really good Christians if we're really honest. And some of us, like we've stuck it out that there's no love between us. 
There's no help between us. There's nothing about the relationship between men and women, husbands and wives, and just people in general that we're demonstrating Jesus in it. And, but, but for the fact that we've stayed contractually obligated to one another, I'm somehow a better Christian than you. So we have to come at this and understand what is he trying to say? What, what, what is important here? Well, there are only two laws in all of the Old Testament that talk about, the, we'll call it the ending of marriage, because divorce is such a loaded term and can mean so many different things. So there's marriage, and then there's ending the marriage. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. Two of them talk about ending a marriage. And only two. Now, I'm going to do three laws today because there's a third law that goes into the idea or the mindset of relationships today, which is this, let's just not get married, but we'll do everything else just like we are. So there are three laws here. The first one, Exodus 21, verse 10, says, If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself... He must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, and sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. In other words, one of the laws is really speaking to polygamy. If he decides he wants another wife, but he's treating you just as well as he's treating her, and you want to stick around, then fine, stick around. But if he's not taking care of you, he's not making sure you're fed and clothed, and, how, and um, you, you have a roof over your head, and you're able to have children if you want to have children, then you can leave. And this is a prevalent practice throughout time and history. It's not just something people deal with today. They dealt with it then, and in Jesus' time, this was, <clears throat> this was a real problem. We look back, and, and one of the, I think, the misunderstandings we have, even of the kings of old, um, would be, how wise Solomon was. Solomon was an idiot. I'll just say it. He did all the things that God told a king not to do. Now, I shouldn't call him an idiot. That's a sin too. But he had multiple wives. And more wives than anyone we know in history ever had. Samuel said, if you want a king... What's going to, what is going to end up happening is that king is going to enslave you. That king is going to create an army and they're going to conscript your children and put them into the army. This is not the way of God. This is not what God wants for you. But this is what a bad king is going to do. You go through that list of bad things that a bad king will do that Samuel promises, and Solomon does every single one of them. The idea of polygamy has is, is been rampant throughout history. And as we talked about last week, there, there, there is a healthy place for desire in which we make a mistake in the church when we say all desire is bad. Desire was created to be good, but it's created to be exercised in a covenant marriage relationship. Polygamy says you, you can't provide enough for my desires. I need more people which is where we often go wrong, which is the, the idea that we consume people. Jesus' teaching on lust is about not trying to consume another person. Yet polygamy does the exact same thing. But that's what this law is about. This, this law, one of the two laws on ending a marriage, 
is about polygamy. Here's the second law. It comes in Deuteronomy 24. It says, suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, this is great, isn't it? I don't know if anybody has any issue with this so far. You're listening. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. But if the second husband also turns against her, writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again, for she has been defiled. That would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt upon the land and the Lord your God is giving you as a special possession. In other words, when you divorce... When you divorce, you let her go. And if she marries someone else, you cannot marry her again. So Those are the two laws. And an interesting third law that I think goes into just this whole thing about marriage, we find in Exodus 22, verse 16, it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. In other words, if you sleep with someone who's not, and you're not married to that person, then you need to marry that person. So some people ask, well, what's, what is the prohibition about you know, sex outside of marriage? That's it. If you're going to sleep with someone who's not your spouse, they need to become your spouse. So those are, are the three laws. These three laws have been interpreted by lots of different rabbis in lots of different ways and we actually will end up when jesus enters onto the scene we actually end up with three primary rabbis who take this teaching and then and and it's interesting their three teachings are still alive today like people still believe it's one of the three they don't realize where it came from but they still fall into one of the three yokes we're going to talk about four because then we're going to look at at jesus's yoke the first one is Rabbi Shammai. And Rabbi Shammai, he interpreted these laws as saying divorce is only permissible if a serious transgression occurs like adultery. Like, yeah, there are some things that happen and the marriage probably just needs to end. But it, like, needs to be serious. And the reason that he would say that, and, and the way we understand covenant marriage is it is about commitment, but it's not just about commitment. Like there has to be a commitment there. But there also needs to be other things in that relationship than simply we are contractually obligated, now we're stuck. Because what kind of testimony is that? But that was Rabbi Shammai. Divorce is only permissible if a serious transgression occurs like adultery. Rabbi Hillel, which you may have heard of, said divorce is permissible for any grievance, including if your wife burns your food. Literally said that. So guys, if you're looking to get out and she burns the ravioli, just, uh, yeah, right, she might burn you next, but uh, Rabbi Hillel's your man. Interestingly, Rabbi Hillel is by far the most um, widely accepted for modern Jewish interpretation. Now, Rabbi Akiva, not to be outdone, another, another very well-known rabbi said, divorce is permissible for any reason, even if you're walking down the street and just see someone you like better. 
So these are the three yokes that were. And Jesus is entering in to these interpretations and these understandings of marriage and the ending of marriage. And then I want us to jump ahead to Matthew 19, where Jesus is then confronted by the Pharisees saying basically this, which of the yokes do you follow? This is what they're going to ask him. Are you a follower of Rabbi Shammai? Are you a follower of Rabbi Hillel? Or are you a follower of Rabbi Akiva? What is your yoke? Is basically what they're asking him. And then Jesus is going to go into further explanation of where he stands on this issue. This is Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, like Rabbi Akiva says? Or pretty much like Rabbi Hillel says? Where are you on this? And he answered. And this is what he, how he answers. It goes back just as we started this morning. Let's go back to the beginning and see what God's goal was from the very beginning. He said, <laughs> Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and his wife, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. I want you to imagine a culture in which power, influence, and value is communicated primarily to one gender. And even the writings of the Scriptures typically talk about men and how they respond in marriage. It's a very man-centered culture, and power structures at that time generally went from man to man to man to man to man to man to man. Now imagine you don't have the same rights and opportunities then that you have today, which is uh, some wives make more money than their husbands do. But now your whole livelihood is wrapped up, and a man could literally say, I like her better, and you're gone. You have no way to earn a living. You're shunned from a culture and from a society. You have no way to make a life, perhaps no legacy to leave. And this is how divorce was practiced around the time of Jesus. And it was justified and we came up with excuses of why you can be able to do it, and all of a sudden men are writing writs of divorce for everything, and women are falling by the wayside with no way to live. Jesus comes into this culture, and he says, you have missed the whole point of what this is all about. This is one of the places that Jesus says, you have heard it 
But I tell you, he's referencing the teachings of the other rabbis. The Pharisees are asking, listen, the men around here, we really like Rabbi Akiva, but um, he's, he's, he is a little progressive. So we just settled with Rabbi Hillel, and she burned my food. And Jesus says, how dare you? Treat someone who was meant to be your helpmate so trivially and dismissed so quickly that you yourself don't even demonstrate the value that God gave them upon their creation. What ends up happening when we jump into these types of texts is we actually make not the main thing the main thing, we make the thing that's not the main thing the main thing because that's what we really want to know. And we typically don't ask the question of divorce until we're ready to have one. You don't typically enter into a marriage thinking this is going to be a wild ride until we decide not to do this anymore. I've heard that some people do that. I really find that has to be quite rare. If you're looking for justification, you can take Scripture and you can turn them into any justification that you want. You can justify why a woman who's being beaten by her husband should stay. You can justify that with Scripture if you ignore the context of Scripture. But you cannot look at the teaching in the life of Jesus and justify that behavior. Jesus cannot say in one hand, I've come to set the oppressed free, and on the other hand, you should stay oppressed because you're contractually obligated. You're stuck. That is not the same Jesus. And this is what happens when we don't go through and understand all of Scripture and try to understand what Jesus is actually saying is we make it say what we want to say and we lose the thing that it's actually saying. And what Jesus is saying, He is talking about the value of people with each other. There are certainly things that will end a marriage. But burning your food is not one of them. Sending them out defenseless, without a way to earn an income, without any value, to then be shunned by their community because you found somebody you like better is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of Jesus. And so we can come to this topic like any other number of sin topics that we want to talk about, and we can heap shame, and we can heap judgment, and we can look at ourselves and I can say, I've never divorced, and yet you can come peel back the window shades of, of my marriage and go, sometimes Mark's a real jerk. And I haven't grasped Jesus' teachings either. But what Jesus would also say, just as the writer of Genesis 2 would say, You are never meant to be in a marriage that you never have any issues. The issues are God-given or ordained. It actually adds to the relationship that you are in tension with each other. I've heard it said, and I believe it to be true, that life lived well is a life that is constantly in tension. You will have tension. There is always the tension between being safe and the tension for risk. If you live your whole life just trying to be safe and unwilling to take any risk, you are not likely to get to the end of your life and go, wow, that was awesome life. 
There is risk in everything you do. Your risk may be in getting married. Your risk may be in leaving your job. Your risk may be in uh, deciding what you want to do with your life. Your risk may be in starting a business. Your risk may be in closing a business. Your risk may be befriending someone that no one else likes, and you're afraid that's going to rub off on you if you befriend them, but you believe I'm supposed to be their friend. There is risk in life that you must take. There's tension. There's tension. And there's tension in marriage. And there's tension in the way that we live. Jesus' concern was not what are the valid reasons to get a divorce, his concern with what it did to the people that were in it. And typically, one group of people came out ahead, and one group of people did not. And his concern was the one that habitually did not. He's not heaping shame. I, you know, I think of the story, this is one of the, the hot topics in the church that we heap shame on. I was thinking of the story of Jesus, um, and, and there's a woman who's committed adultery, uh, and in that culture, that's shame. I, I mean, the law literally says she should be stoned, and yet Jesus comes in, showing us what loving God and loving people looks like, and he stood between them, and he said, you who have no sin in your life, cast the first stone. And he did not shame her. He looked at her and he said, where are your accusers? I'll go sin. No, I'll go and sin no more. That is the Jesus that's talking about this issue. Not the Jesus saying you're not good enough. His whole point was, you are both beautiful. This relationship is supposed to have tension in it. We do have to work it out. Jesus would go on and talk about marriage in other ways, and and. We don't have time to go into all the different teachings around marriage or then Paul throws his, his hat in the ring, which most people um, today really don't like Paul. Because um, again, we don't actually understand what Paul is saying. Jesus is looking for the valuing of all people. Imitators of God. In a marriage, you are going to have conflict. I've been told um, in different uh, seasons of my life, um, men need to be in charge, and yet I look at men and women sometimes, and the men can't. I, I, a friend of mine used to say he he can't uh, organize a one car funeral, and then their wife may run, you know, multiple businesses and hold high positions and be highly capable, and yet the man is supposed to make the decision. And I think that is so stupid, you know. And I look at my marriage with Deidre, I, tension, tension. Like, we don't always agree. I know that's surprising, um, unless you know us both, and then it doesn't surprise you. We don't always agree. There's tension. And sometimes she lets me make the decision, and I make a bad decision. And sometimes I let her make a decision that I would never make. It was a good decision. It was a good decision. This 
kind of patriarchal attitude, which is a hot word today that's being used for lots of different things. But it is a legitimate word, and it describes a legitimate uh, place in Scripture. Patriarchal system was not God's system. God's system was Ish and Isha. This was God's system. And we can look at marriage between a man and a woman, but we can also look at this relationship between men and women, and tension is supposed to be there. We learn how to live life through the tension. We don't run whenever we are opposed or we're in opposition to each other. We figure it out. And in marriage, Deidre and I figure it out. There are times I'm wrong. A few times of those times I admit it, right? Occasionally she's wrong. There are times that we are in great disagreement with each other. And there are times I look in the mirror and I think, there's a lot better looking guys out there. And part of the commitment is, I'm with you no matter what. Like, we're, we're getting older. You know, we were showing, I mean, even you, we showed, listen, we showed some of you guys, some of our, my 50-year birthday party we had, I don't know, a few weeks ago, and Deidre brought a bunch of pictures up. And you all said some unkind things. I mean, you thought they were kind, but you were talking about how good-looking I used to be. I'm not good-looking anymore. I know it. I know it. You didn't mean it, you didn't mean it bad, but it, it was bad. It was bad. But... She's committed to me. Even though there's a lot better better looking people out there. I'm committed to her. And here's what I would say to you, and those of you who have been married a long time, like you can attest to this. This is one of the reasons that, that our elders are supposed to inform our youngers. They've seen a thing or two. They can speak to this issue. We tend to think elders have no clue, but elders have all the clues. They have all the clues. And one of the things that you learn is that there's one thing just to be committed to each other and to be in love and everything's great and you never argue. Every time I do premarital counseling and they and I my, one of my my questions is always tell me about your last argument. Oh, we just so love each other. We just don't argue. I think uh, you should not get married. You should not get married. Cuz if you don't know how to argue, you'll never make it. But we do tend to have fewer arguments in the beginning than we do as Time goes on, right? Commitment says, I'm here even when we disagree. Commitment says, I'm here even when we don't look like we did when we first got married. Commitment says, says I'm here, I'm with you. And, and what our elders will tell us is, so there is joy in, and there is um, good stuff in, in when, when we don't fight and we look at each other and think, hey, you are the, the hottest thing on the face of the planet. It's just you're beautiful and awesome and all that. There's a beauty in that, but there's a beauty when you walk through life in tension and you're still there. That's where the good stuff in marriage is. It is not the absence of tension. It is the, the ability to be committed to one another in the midst of tension, and that tension was put there by God himself. This is what Jesus is saying. What always comes up, and this is what I want to close with, and I don't, we'll talk about this in more depth later. What always comes up when we talk about marriage is uh, the places in Scripture we don't like to hear. I, I remember when I was growing up, it was common in a marriage vow to say, the, the, the wife to say, 
Um, um, I will love, honor, and obey. And that's the response we get, right? We don't say that much anymore. We say cherish or I don't know. We say other things. But, but we, somebody, points, somebody points to what Paul was saying about submission. We say, and somebody else will say, well, see, Jesus is propping up the patriarchy. Paul propped up the patriarchy when he said women should submit to their husbands. And the only way you can believe that is if you know nothing about the culture and you know nothing about Jesus and you know nothing about Paul. I've heard over and over how much Paul is a male chauvinist. Paul is not a male chauvinist. One of the other things we have a problem with in this passage of Scripture is the place in Scripture where it says wives will submit to their husbands is immediately after Paul just said submit to each other. And in this culture in which Paul says the husband is, is the head of the wife and the wife will submit to her husband, you have to understand this was to a Roman audience. And in this Roman audience that he's talking to, the average age of a man who would get married was his mid-30s, and the average age of a woman that would get married was 15. Like literally illegal in our day and time. Illegal. You can't like you don't even be on a date, right? You're going to jail. But this was common practice. And when a woman was married, she would come in, and the only value she had was the value she brought to the household when cooking and cleaning and providing children. And this is not the way of Jesus. But this was the way of Rome. And so in this, Paul enters into this power structure and believe and another phrase that has loaded with all kinds of things today. He enters into this power structure where men hold the power and the wealthy hold the power and those that he loved who were being oppressed had no power and Paul was speaking into that system when he said men are the head of the family like Jesus is the head of the church. And that makes sense, right? Men are in charge. I mean, the wife gets to have an opinion, but the man gets to decide. That's not what Paul's saying here. So if we're going to lead like Jesus, he does some things we don't like to do as when we're leading. We don't like to wash the feet of the people we're leading. Right? Serve the people that we're leading. At times be tortured and nailed to a cross to the people we are leading. And so in this power structure, Paul comes in and he says, men serve your wives. Men give up your life for your wife. And in that culture, those men would be ostracized, ridiculed, made fun of, or we might rephrase, persecuted, because of Christ. Now in that system, where does wives submit to your husbands fit in? I mean, if you already have a husband submitting to his wife, now where does this whole thing come in? Like, is she the, is it like, is it a race to the bottom? You know, she, oh no, I'm going to say, oh no, I'm going to say, oh no. I mean, is that what he's talking about? What a What an exhausting idea of marriage. But instead, what Paul is saying is simply this. Men, serve your wives. Love your wives. Give up yourself for her. And women, this is not a place 
to now take the power dynamic from Him and Lord over Him. Serve Him. The idea is it has nothing to do with one person submitting to the other. The whole teaching of Paul on this, submit to one another. And in so doing, you will fulfill the law of Christ, which is what? Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We do that in marriage. We do that in parenting. We do that in friendship. We do that in relationships. We do that in church. We do it out of church. This is the way of Jesus. And I believe in Matthew 19 when Jesus says, this teaching is for those who can bear it. He's literally saying, this is not easy. I'm not giving anybody an out. I'm telling you, this is hard work. But this is my way. And if you do it, there's not many people who are going to be willing to do it. So our testimony of marriage needs not be we have no problems. Because nobody believes that. Our testimony need not be one person is in power over the other. There are decisions I make in our family because I'm better to make them. And there are decisions in our family that Deidre is better to make them. And she makes them. This is the way of tension. So as we come to this, and as I kind of wrap this up, for some this may, I, I can't in 30, 40 minutes, I can't, I can't answer every question. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about here. But this is what Jesus is talking about. He, we want to make it about the adultery or the burning the dinner or the we see somebody more attractive. Jesus, He doesn't make it about that. He makes it about this is what God intends for men and women. I'll live that out. Live that out. It is the mutually edifying, encouraging, valuing, pushing, holding up, and not seeking for glory for ourselves. Now, to answer your question, um, I'm not going to. Because that's not the point of this teaching. That's not the point of this teaching. The point of this teaching is how do we value the people we commit our lives to? So that may mean that some of us need to commit our lives. We need to commit. We need to commit. I'm in, no matter what. Might not have been kind of wandering. Been wandering, looking around, and you need to stop wandering. Jesus said that's that's tantamount to adultery. That's the exact you get the exact same consequences of committing adultery that you do in just wandering your eyes around. Some of us need to stop seeing ourselves as the top dog in the family, whether we're the husband or the wife. We need to start raising up our spouse. Some of us need to go and apologize. Some of us need to give forgiveness. Some of us need to stop letting one person make all the decisions and we need to start having conversations. And you need to recognize that your spouse sees things you don't see, they know things you don't know, they have perspectives you don't have, and God gave that to you because that is strength in your marriage. Some of you guys, you're making all the decisions about finances and yet your wife is a financial planner. I'm just going to encourage you to make whatever decision you need to make there. I think um, it would be wise for you not to be making all the financial decisions. Amen? (laughs) And that's what Jesus would say. And we start encouraging and lifting people up. As the church in this culture, divorce is common. 
We have to stop shaming people over the things we ourselves have not committed. That is not the way of Jesus. We don't ignore these teachings as if they don't matter. Do what you want. Because Jesus would say, this is the way, and the way is narrow. And few will find it. We've got to stop shaming people because their sins are different than ours. This is not the way of Jesus. The only people Jesus ever came close to shaming were the religious people that liked shaming everybody else. And even then, His desire was for them to repent. We've got to repent from the shaming we do. This is a culture that believes they know everything about what we believe, and and the reality is that some of them know more than we do, and it's our faith. We've got to get into this Scripture, and we've got to digest it. We've got to let it wash over us. We've got to understand. Some of us are going to have to do some, some context study and find out what were they talking about back then, because what they were talking about may not be exactly where I'm trying to apply it right now. Let us be examples committed relationships who are not afraid of opposition and we can love each other even when we disagree. We can hold each other up as co-image bearers of God. That is what marriage is. That is what church is. That is what relationships between husbands and wives and just men and women and generally are supposed to be. You don't have to be the same. You are beautifully made the way you are. And even if that's different from me, you are beautifully made. Pray with me. Father, somebody here today is struggling with an issue that this was way too simplistic to deal with their thing. But God, you have an answer for their thing. And I pray that you would make that evident to them. Someone may be listening today and it really is that simple. They need to stop adding all these other issues. They just need to accept the simplicity of this teaching, which is love each other, commit to each other, value each other, do life together, and together you are something that is good. Father, I pray that you would forgive us when we have shamed others. Pray that you would forgive us when we make someone else's sin more detestable than the sin in our own lives. I pray that we would change the way marriage is seen in this world. I pray that we would change the way people live in marriage with each other. That we will see the beauty of being in in this tension and that we add to each other and together we become something beautiful. We're not in competition with each other. Father, let us follow you faithfully in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I talked a little too long. I'd like to do communion with you. And so if you'd like to come up and get um, one of our um, wonderful fast food communion things, you can. As always, the trays in the middle... Um, are gluten-free, and the lids say gluten-free if you need gluten-free.
Um, I ran out of our cool-looking um, kind of old English chalice ones, so the other ones on this table that look a little different are still just normal communion. Um, and the gluten-free are the ones in the middle. As you, as we leave today, I recognize there may be some disagreement with me, and I'm not afraid of that. And I recognize there are people here today that maybe need a little more time on this, and I'll be happy to talk with you. But can we agree in these closing moments together as we take communion that the whole point of all of this that we're doing together is to love God and to love each other? Jesus gave us this in order for us to remember and to recognize what true service, true leadership, true love looked like. And that He loved us so much He was willing to give His life for us. Up until the time that Jesus gave them um, this practice of the Lord's Supper, we sometimes call it, this same ritual was, was happening and had been for many generations to remember their deliverance from Egypt. We do this today to remember our deliverance from sin and the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. So He first took the bread. He broke it. And He said, this is My body which is broken for you. Then He took the cup. And he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As you leave this place, know that Jesus goes with you. Jesus is active in your life. And if your relationship is struggling, which statistically probably someone at least in here is, He's with you. He will walk with you through that. And if you need help, you only need to ask. If you're in a relationship that's abusive, you need help. And you can quietly reach out to me. You can um, just walk up to me after church sometime or, or whatever. If you need help, we're going to get you help. Jesus did not come to free the oppressed for you to be oppressed in your marriage. If you need help, we will help. But you have to ask for that help. Alright? Okay. So a little bit of a heavy note to leave on today. Um, but we are finished. And I hope you have a wonderful week. And that you will join us um, when we gather again next Sunday. Alright? God bless you.